are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Okay, so let me get things straight here for our lead question, because I really like our lead question today. Uh, Here's the headline I have on the top of my page. Was a pastor justified in planning to kill Hitler? And and really, you could say that the question could come back, could murder ever be justified? Now, I'll talk a little bit more about the phrasing of that. Uh, But here's a question. It comes in by email from a viewer or a website participant named Timmy who asks this. Here's the question. Do you believe that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was justified in being a part of the assassination attempts on Hitler during World War II? I thought this would be an interesting question and would love to hear your thoughts on it. Thank you, sir. Well, Timmy, thank you for your question. I think that is a good question. And I think it touches on a few things in Christian theology. And some of these things that we talk about are specifically from the Bible and others are not. I think they're legitimate conclusions from principles that are in the Bible, but the conclusions themselves aren't specifically stated in the Bible. I do would say, for my own opinion, I think they're appropriately drawn from the scriptures. All right, let's come back to why this is an issue at all. It's an issue at all because we have a command in the Bible that believers should submit to the government. Uh, Maybe you remember passages such as Titus chapter 3, verse 1, that says, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. Or I must say, I like how that's phrased in the New Living Translation. Here's how it reads in the New Living Translation. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. Friends, look, God has commanded his people, the disciples of Jesus Christ, to submit to authorities in many different areas or spheres. And uh, these would include uh, a general submission to one another in the congregation. Christians are, in general, to submit to one another. That's what Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 says. Uh, There's submission in the church, with congregants commanded to submit to church leaders. There's submission in the workplace with slaves commanded to submit to masters, with the modern analogy of employees being commanded to submit to their employers. There's submission in the home. Uh, Children are commanded to submit to their parents and wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. And then finally, there's submission from citizens to their government, as we see here in Titus chapter 3. Uh, Then also Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. Let let me show you that passage. It's an important passage in this whole discussion. Romans 13, beginning at verse 1. (coughs) Excuse me. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God, Therefore, whoever resists the authority, resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. Now, we have these different areas or spheres of submission. Uh, That one I just read you from Romans chapter 13 clearly describes the sphere of submission having to do with government. Let every soul be subject to governing authorities. But again, as I mentioned before, we have congregational, workplace, family, government. But here's the thing. 
no matter what the different sphere of submission or authority that God has outlined in the scriptures, the principles of submission are consistent in these different areas. You see, submission isn't just complying or submitting when you happen to agree. Friends, that's important and often neglected. I would say submission isn't even really tested until there's an area of disagreement and you say, look, you would do it this way, I would do it that way, but God's called me to submit to your authority, so I'm going to submit to what you want to do, and I'll do it. That's really, submission isn't even tested until there's some kind of disagreement. But then, here's another principle, and it's very important. Submission in these human spheres, congregation, community, uh, home, workplace, Submission in these human spheres is never given as an absolute command. That is, if any of these areas of authority command us to do something that goes against God's command, then we obey God first. Now, I'm kind of startled by the fact that there have been some within the Christian family who have taught differently. There have been some who have taught in the Christian family If someone in rightful authority over you tells you to sin, then you should sin and trust God to deal with them. No, we're not to sin. We're to obey God rather than man. That's what uh, Peter said in um, Acts chapter 4. Here's verses 19 and 20. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which you have seen and heard. Then later on in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, he said, we ought to obey God rather than men. Friends, God commands us to obey and to submit to human authority on many levels, but those commands are never absolute. Obedience to God comes first. So we could say that there is a tension here. It is possible to sin by not submitting when we should and really just submitting when we happen to agree. That's not submission at all. But then we can also sin by submitting to government against the command of God. Now, this means that there can be an appropriate place for a believer to resist or to support the resistance of ungodly and unjust rulers. Now, however, when that's done, it should be informed, I believe, by something that the church has traditionally called just war theory. Now, just war theory isn't something that is exclusively Christian. Even before Christianity, the ancients thought about what was right and what was wrong in respect to war. Yet there was a definite Christian development of the idea of the just war, especially with theologians such as Augustine and Aquinas. And to summarize, and folks, believe me, I'm summarizing a lot just into this. But to summarize, there's four basic ideas in just war theory. Here's the four basic ideas of just war theory. Number one, the target or object of war must be doing real damage, harm that is lasting, serious, and certain. Number two, all other ways of putting an end to the damage caused by the target of war must be truly impractical or ineffective. Number three, there must be a serious chance of success. 
And then number four, the action taken must not create evils and chaos worse than the evil that's being addressed. Okay, so when you take those four principles, which I would say, I would agree with those four principles. When you take them and apply them to Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler, it's sort of interesting. Now, there were many plots to assassinate Adolf Hitler, but perhaps the most nearly successful one was carried out on July 20th, 1944, uh, less than a year before the end of the war. That attempt failed because the bomb that was used in the plot was somewhat shielded from Hitler himself. Hitler only suffered minor injuries in that explosion. And to my knowledge, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wasn't directly involved in the plot, but he definitely belonged to a broader resistance group in Germany that carried out that plot. Bonhoeffer was among the 200 conspirators who were eventually arrested and executed in that failed assassination attempt. Interestingly, Bonhoeffer wasn't immediately arrested, but when one of the main plotters of the assassination attempt, his name was Admiral Wilhelm Canaris, when he was arrested and his diary was confiscated, Bonhoeffer was mentioned in the diary as part of the resistance movement. And you can imagine in the fury of Adolf Hitler against this assassination attempt, he rounded up everybody that he could and just had them all killed. Now, I think Bonhoeffer's participation in the resistance against Adolf Hitler and the Nazi leadership of Germany was completely justified and biblical. This was an appropriate place for a believer to resist or to support the resistance of ungodly and unjust rulers. Again, the Bible commands believers to submit to the government, but never commands absolute submission to any human authority. Now, I believe that it's easy to exaggerate Bonhoeffer's participation in the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. But even if he was very much involved, I think that it would fit under the ideas of appropriate resistance to evil and the Christian idea of a just war. The target, in this case, Adolf Hitler, he really was doing lasting serious and certain damage. I'm just working through these four points. Number two, all other ways of putting an end to the damage were truly impractical or ineffective. Number three, there was a serious chance of success. That bomb that exploded in that conference room at the Wolf's Lair in Germany trying to assassinate Hitler, it almost worked. And then number four, the action taken would not create evils and chaos worse than the evil that was being addressed. So I would say that yes, to whatever extent Dietrich Bonhoeffer was involved in the resistance to Adolf Hitler and the Nazi leadership of Germany, he was justified. And I would go even further. I would say that in a sense, he was doing God's work. There's an old saying, I, I don't remember where it comes from. I'm sure it was from uh, the English. I don't know how much application it had in the American Revolution. But the, the line went something like this. Resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Listen, that is a slogan that could be used 
to unjustly justify a lot of evil. But there's some truth to that. Resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Uh, So I think it's legitimate to think about those four points of just war theory, how they might apply. And when you do apply those principles to Bonhoeffer, I think he comes out looking pretty good. All right, that's it for our lead question for right now. Let me click over to our uh, producer and seeing here, um, Margaret asks, what does the term justification mean? Is it to be made righteous? If so, then how do we define sanctification? What's the difference? Oh, Margaret, what a great uh, question here. You're right, Margaret. The word justification, uh, not so much in the English, but in the language of the New Testament, Koine Greek, that word justification really does mean to make righteous or to declare righteous. Which is really a wonderful statement, because uh, in the American legal system, I know legal systems in other nations are somewhat different. But in the American legal system, when somebody is on trial for a crime, they appear before the judge or the jury. And they are declared either guilty or not guilty. Now, I want you to understand, we all understand what it means to be declared guilty. That's bad. But not guilty just means nothing, zero. God's declaration that a believer is justified, that they're made or declared righteous, that isn't just merely um, saying not guilty. It's a positive declaration of righteousness. It, it would be like this, is if the judge said, and I know this is kind of dumb, but let me go along with this anyway, is if the judge said, um, you're not guilty and really awesome. A a judge would never say that. It's impolite in the American system. But there is this wonderful standing that the believer has as being righteous. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is applied to that believer, which is really marvelous. Okay, so we, we think about that idea. Now, righteousness or justification begins as the declaration of God, and then sanctification is the outworking of the reality of that in the life of the believer. There is a sense in which all Christian growth, all Christian sanctification is the process of simply being what we are or who we are before God. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, who was another guy who had extensive commentary on the Bible. I, You know, I got to say, I don't remember if Warren Wiersbe had a commentary on the entire Bible. If it wasn't the entire Bible, it was almost all the Bible. Very helpful commentary. I have often used it. Um, Warren Wiersbe had a great little book simply titled, it was a great title, Be What You Are. And so, Margaret, here's the relationship between Um, being justified and sanctification. Justification is the declaration of righteousness. Sanctification is the practical outworking of it in the life. That would be the, the, the two different aspects of it. God declares the believer to be righteous, to be justified, and then 
uh, the believer working by the Spirit, according to God's Word, in the flow of God's power, actually sees that righteousness being worked out and growing in their life. Hope that's helpful for you, Margaret. Thank you for your question. Next question comes from Charles H. Don't mind if I take a drink from my Blue Letter Bible cup. God bless the great team at Blue Letter Bible. Um, Charles H. asks this question. I was always taught that 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 refers to a rapture right before the Great Tribulation. Recently, some in the church claim the rapture is a recent idea not held by the early church. What are your thoughts and why might someone claim this? Okay, Charles, I'm glad you asked this question because it's something I like to talk about. Look, Charles, I, I, I understand, but I don't understand. There's a mixture of both. Why some people, and it seems like maybe the voices are a little bit louder today, why some people like to say, there's no rapture in the Bible. Look, it's right there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, rapture is just the Latin translation of that Greek word harpazo, to be caught up. And so this catching up, this catching away, described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 17, and on into verse 18, that's the rapture. It, it's clear as day in the scriptures. Now, I, I suspect that what most people mean when they say that is the rapture as you have been taught it, they would say that it's not a Bible doctrine. I would disagree with them. But if somebody wants to say that, that's fair enough. But the mere fact that the people of God are going to be caught away, that they're going to be raptured, it is so clearly stated in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that, yes, there it is. Now, if you want to talk about what the nature of that catching away is, if you want to talk about when it happens, we can talk about how it fits in with God's broader prophetic plan, great, we can talk about all those things. But, but don't say that it's not there. It's there, plain as day. To me, you just sound dishonest. You, you sound like you're trying to play word games when you say there's no rapture in the Bible. It's there. Let's just talk about how and when it happens. That is something that's very fair to debate. And look, uh, Charles, I, I would simply say that I do believe, as you have been taught, that there will be a catching away of God's people before the start or at the very start of this last seven-year period of humanity that I believe the Bible describes in some detail. Look, there's all different opinions on this. Christians have different perspectives on the teaching of the end times or eschatology. And uh, I understand that. But I would say this. The, the main reason I believe in what is sometimes called the pre-tribulational rapture is, number one, I believe that the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And I think that there are so many descriptions and explanations of the return of Christ that there has to be an appreciable time gap between one aspect of his return and another aspect of his return. Otherwise, it's hard for me to see that the scriptures don't contradict themselves. That's one, number one. And then number two, I believe in the pre-tribulational rapture, not because I see no problems with it. I see some problems scripturally with that. But when I take a look at all the other eschatological 
end times frameworks, interpretive approaches. I see more profound problems. I see worse problems with their approaches. I'm of the camp that says there are no problem-free understandings of eschatology. Every different conception, amillennial, postmillennial, premillennial. If you want to talk about in the premillennial camp, you're talking about uh, post-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, pre-wrath rapture, pre-trib rapture. If you want to talk about uh, other things, you talk about uh, total preterism, partial preterism. Listen, every one of those approaches has problems. You, you just have to sort through the evidence and say, which problems am I willing to accept? Which one has the fewest problems? And so that's how I accept it. I, I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture because the Bible says there's going to be a rapture. Now the idea is when does it happen? In what context does it happen? And I believe it because the, the, in what is often called the pre-tribulation rapture because I believe the Bible doesn't contradict itself. And then number two, uh, because I believe that that framework has the least problems as the other approaches, not because it has no problems. Hope that's helpful for you there, Charles. Next question comes from Adonis, who asks, Does Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 through 18, teach that refusing to speak with a brother or neighbor is refusal to reason frankly and is an act of hatred towards or failure to love a brother or a neighbor? Okay, uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 17 and 18. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. All right, well, Adonis, if you don't mind, I'm going to reference my own commentary here. First of all, it's very interesting to see that the command that Jesus reinforced in the Gospels the importance of loving your neighbor as yourself was uh, something that Jesus drew from the Old Testament. It's not new. And so what Jesus is really saying is we shouldn't narrow the scope of who is our neighbor, but we should realize that those who are around us, those in our immediate presence are our neighbor, and we should deal with them as such. Now, don't hate your brother you shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. In other words, as you're saying, to see your neighbor in error and to refuse to speak to them is a demonstration of hatred. Adonis, I would just say this. There's two ways that hatred can be expressed. Sometimes hatred is expressed in a very active way. I hate you. I want to work against you, I despise you, etc., etc. That's one way that hatred can and often is expressed. But then there's another way that hatred can be expressed. Hatred can also be expressed by saying, I want absolutely nothing to do with you. You mean nothing to me, and uh, I'm not going to give you the slightest thought whatsoever. That is another expression of hatred. Hatred towards another person. 
So really, uh, what I think is being spoken of here in this Leviticus 19, where it says, you shall surely rebuke your neighbor, the failure to speak a loving word of correction to your neighbor when they're wrong is a way of saying, I don't care about you. I care nothing for you. And so, of course, as it says there in verse 18, you're not to take vengeance nor bear grudge against the children of your people, but to love your neighbor as yourself. So, yes, Adonis, I would say that. The detachment from my neighbor that just simply says, I'm going to let them continue in error and in destructive uh, destructive lies, you could say. Um, if I don't try to correct them in love, then I'm showing a lack of love. I'm, I'm not loving my neighbor. Thanks for that question, Adonis. Next question comes from Junebug. Hey, may I just say thank you to our regulars who are on here today? Uh, because I've kept you waiting for 45 minutes and uh, we got many people on here. So, uh, okay. Um, Junebug asks, Hi, Pastor Guzik. Although I completely reject the prosperity gospel, what are your thoughts on praying for a healthy and long life with a genuine heart to use that time and energy to do God's work? Junebug, I am fully supportive of people praying that God would give them a long and healthy life in order to serve him and glorify him. Nothing wrong with that. Listen, Junebug, it is possible that God would be most glorified in a person's life through some great adversity that they have to deal with. And, and maybe that adversity was have to do with some kind of disease or illness or something. It's possible. But that's not how we normally think. And God does not fault us for having those normal thoughts. It's entirely reasonable for us to think, Lord, I think I can serve you better and glorify you more with a long, healthy life. There's nothing wrong with praying with that. Of course, we're always surrendered to the Lord. We're always submitted to his purpose. That goes without saying. But God speaks to us uh, in just the normal course of what we think and can see in daily life. And so, Junebug, I think that that's a very appropriate prayer to pray. You're absolutely fine in praying that prayer. God bless you for... uh, entering that, or for uh, bringing that question to us today. All right, uh, if you don't mind, I'm going to check a couple of things here online. Just take a look at our stream health, viewer activity. We've got a few viewers on here now. Welcome. Everything looks good. Uh, If you're just joining us, we're already at 1.15. We're usually 15 minutes past the time that we normally go. And it's because we got started 45 minutes late because we had technical problems. Thank you for your patience and hanging with us. Okay, next question comes from USCG Mom. I wonder if that means U.S. Coast Guard Mom. If so, God bless your child, son or daughter who's serving in the U.S. Coast Guard. God bless you for that. Um, Here's the question. Good morning from NorCal, Pastor David. Would you please explain in depth as possible the unforgivable sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? P.S. As many of us have children who have walked away from the Lord Jesus, we're heartbroken and we pray unceasingly. All right, well, uh, Coast Guard mom, uh, the best way to understand and explain the exact nature of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit 
is not drawn from just any one passage. Even not the passage where Jesus specifically mentions the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Jesus mentioned the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in the connection with the religious leaders of the day who were becoming very hardened in their rejection of Jesus. And Jesus warned them of the sin of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. Now, Coast Guard Mom, when I think about what the unforgivable sin is, taking from the rest of the scriptures, I would say that the unforgivable sin is the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ. Every other sin can be forgiven if a person will put their faith, their hope, their trust, will, will abide in Jesus Christ. All those other sins can be dealt with then. But the sin of rejecting Jesus, of basically saying to God, I don't need Jesus. I don't want Jesus. I'll save myself. Thank you very much. That's a sin that can't be forgiven. That's something that God was, oh, don't worry about it. No, no, no. That's the unforgivable sin. And it fits in well with what the religious leaders were doing at the time uh, Jesus warned them about it. They were becoming increasingly hardened in their rejection of Jesus. And how is this a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Why isn't this called blasphemy of Jesus? Well, it is a blasphemy of Jesus in a sense, but let's remember the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said of the ministry of the Holy Spirit that he, meaning the Holy Spirit, will testify of me, that is of Jesus. The Holy Spirit will testify of Jesus. And so for a person to, in a hardened, permanent sense, refuse and reject the testimony of the Holy Spirit as to who Jesus is and what he did to rescue us, that is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And that's the unforgivable sin. Some years ago, there were some people, I, I don't think it's being done much anymore. I don't know. I, I don't hear about it. There were people, uh, atheists, agnostics, infidels, skeptics, trying to get young people to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You know, they, they would invite them to say some words into a microphone, and then they would, woo, hey, you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, ha, ha, ha. Friends, it's not a joke. But if somebody ever had said, I, I, I think of one of those young people coming up and asking me and say something like, it's David, I... I said it publicly into a microphone that I, I renounce and blaspheme the Holy Spirit. How can I ever be saved? I, I would say that they could cease their blasphemy of the Holy Spirit in a moment by accepting the testimony of what the Holy Spirit says about Jesus Christ. Put your faith in Jesus, in who he is and what he did to rescue us, especially what he did at the cross and the empty tomb and you will be saved. That's the glorious truth in Jesus Christ. So, Coast Guard mom, keep praying for your son and daughter. You have no idea how and when God's going to get through to them. Keep praying. Keep hoping. I think there's something honorable and precious before the Lord with the prayers of a, um, of a mom or a dad 
for their wayward kids. God bless you with that. All right, next question comes from Isa, who asks, question regarding 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. Should I cut myself off from my unbelieving family? I tried to be a light to no effect, even darkness affecting me instead. And here it is. Um, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33 says, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. All right, well, Isa, let, let me say this. Number one, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul deals very specifically with the idea that should a Christian abandon their family because they're not believers. And in 1 Corinthians 7, he deals with it most pointedly with the married relationship, but it can apply by principle to other relationships as well. Jesus says, no, do not abandon your family, um, even if they're unbelievers. God may use you to bring salvation to them. So that's the general principle. Now, Isa, you say that your family's having a very bad effect on you. I, I would say that perhaps that means that you should look for ways to lessen their influence. And Isa, it's a little bit difficult because you're not giving enough specifics in your question. I'm not faulting you for that, but I'm just saying that if you're talking about your husband, that's one thing. If you're talking about your in-laws, that's another thing. Because it's fairly easy to say, um, we're going to spend less time with my in-laws or my aunts and uncles or my cousins or whatever. It's a different thing to say, I'm going to spend less time with my spouse. So assuming you don't mean your spouse, if you see that family members are having a bad influence on you, I think it is fair to spend less time with them, but I would not cut them off under the principles that Paul spoke about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So I, I hope that's clear to you. Um, I, I'm not giving you more specifics other than that, but that's just kind of how I would see it in that regard. All right. Um, here's a question from Deb who asks, how can we explain God's love to a young woman, a person who's been molested? I find the story of David's daughter, Tamar, who became persona non grata, insufficient to offer any consolation. Well, Deb, I think one of the ways to explain God's love to a person, and in this case, you're talking about a woman who's been molested. But by the way, of course, it, it's not only women who are molested. There are many men who have suffered under molestation. And they can go through the same or similar things as women who have been molested. One of the most important things to communicate to them is um, the sin that was committed against them was not their sin. I find it constantly fascinating how, as human beings, we have a tendency to not feel guilty over things that we should feel guilty about. You know, there's a lot of things that people should feel guilty about, but they don't feel any guilt about whatsoever. And then there's other things that people have no business feeling guilty about, but they do. I, I would just 
really help them to understand and to not take any unnecessary guilt upon themselves at all. Listen, we have enough of a difficult time dealing with the things where we should feel guilty. That's enough for us to deal with. We don't need to live under a false or unjust sense of guilt at all. So that's one sense. But then here's the other thing, is to let them know that there is a power in the Lord to restore and to rebuild. Oftentimes we get a little bit frustrated because we think it should happen quicker. I understand that. But we can't ignore the beautiful, the powerful way that God rebuilds and restores. He does this great, wonderful work in our lives. So what this dear young woman needs to do, perhaps she should get some serious counseling about it. I I can't say not knowing the situation itself, but it wouldn't be a surprise to me if she should get some serious counseling about her situation from someone good who can give her godly and biblical wisdom. And then she needs to be able to give it time, time, trusting in the work and in the grace of God, but especially to be free from the unjustified and crippling guilt that so many often feel in those circumstances. All right. um, Let's see here. We're at our lightning round now. And uh, producer, perfect. Lightning round now is perfect. We'll do that, and then we'll wrap it up for the day. Okay. um, Here we go. Uh, Lightning round. Tunnel Banan Shugotre says, if Sodom and Gomorrah would have changed their minds... From unbelief to belief, but continue to live in sin and not repent, repent, would God still have wiped them out? Uh, I think that there's something wrong with your question. Because if they would have believed, if they would have submitted to Yahweh, the Lord, the God of Abraham, if they would have submitted to God, it would have been seen in their conduct. It would have been seen in how they lived. So there's somewhat of a disconnect. Remember, that there's this principle here um, that the grace that saves my soul will also change my life. We understand the changes don't come all at once, and the changes are never complete on this side of eternity. But there should be, there must be some evidence of changed life in the life of a believer. Hope that helps you there. Spirit Warrior asks, in your commentary on Acts chapter 28, verses 8 and 9, you talk about the same word in English for healing, having different meanings in verse 8 and 9. Can you explain those differences? Um, okay, well, here's the difference, is that in one of those usages in Acts chapter 28, one of those words has more of the idea of the application of medicine. And so it really seems that the word for healed is not the customary word for miraculous healing, but it more literally means to receive medical attention. And so it's entirely possible that Luke, who was with Paul on the island of Malta, and who was a physician, according to Colossians chapter 4, verse 14, that he was serving as a medical missionary. We see a combination, I would say, indicated by those ancient words of both, 
of both God doing a miraculous work of healing and then working through medicine, through the attention of Dr. Luke. That's what I mean by that spirit warrior. Thanks for that. Laura asks, why was the apostle John the one chosen to make known the book of Revelation? Uh, Laura, I would say it was because um, he was so dearly loved by God. And God reveals special things to those who dearly love him and whom he dearly loves. Uh, Beyond that, I don't think there's any reason to understand why God chose certain people to receive certain revelations. We can just guess. That's the best we can do. Next question comes from Johanna, who asks, Hey, Pastor Guzik, I have a question from my teen. He has become friendly with a young lady who is a Catholic and interested in her, but wants to do right by God first. How should he approach this? Okay, well, Johanna, um, your question is a little bit vague, because when you say become friendly with, I I don't know how much that implies a real romantic relationship, uh, something that could possibly be on the track for marriage. Uh, Look, I'm all for young people having friends, and I I don't think they should live in isolation, and even from people of the opposite sex. And uh, I don't think that we have to be paranoid if a person comes from a different religious tradition. I would say that uh, he should avoid serious romance uh, unless that they are really unified on these important things of uh, the spiritual life, meaning their Christian faith. Um, However, it would just be good for him to develop a friendship and to get to know her. So I would say caution, not alarm, is justified. Maybe that's a good way to put it. And then uh, Donald, last question here, asks, am I being too legalistic? Should we be wearing the clothing jerseys of our favorite team in the Super Bowl to church service at Sunday morning worship service? Okay, Donald, um, listen, I would say that it matters. There's two things at work here. Number one, there's the environment of your church. Donald, if you are the only one at church wearing a 49ers jersey or a, God forbid, a Kansas City's chief jersey. Uh, If you are the only one there, it's probably inappropriate. You're sticking out in a weird way. So uh, if it's not commonly done at your church, I would avoid it. But then there's another reason completely separate from that to not do it. And that's just if your conscience is telling you don't do it. Listen, Donald, there's so many things in the Christian life that don't really depend upon a command in the Word of God, but we just walk in the Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to express to us in whatever way He expresses to us, yes or no. And so I would feel that if you don't have the confidence to do something like that in faith, then you shouldn't do it. And uh, you should just say, for whatever reason, maybe it would be okay for somebody else to do that. You're not telling the leadership of the church to pass a a resolution in the church. No one shall wear such clothing, you know, to a worship service. Um, But maybe you realize you're not asking this about anybody else, but just for you, it's not right. Maybe that's a great way to do it. Hope that's helpful for you, Donald. And again, I just want to give a great big hello, a great big thank you to everybody (laughs) who stuck with us despite our terribly late start. And I trust that with all the updates that have been done and with everything going on here with our uh, um, system, 
I think we're going to be just fine to start at 12 noon West Coast time next week. Thank you, producer, for doing a great job and hanging in there. Thank you, everybody, for joining us today. And God willing, and if we live, we'll see you next week. God bless you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.